Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And to become a pastor, I had to go to seminary, graduate school, which we call seminary. And in seminary, I heard um, about this passage in several different courses. And the idea that I heard about was always that um, this passage uh, shows that the early church was divided in its teaching and that the Bible um, contradicts itself. And so they would say that... Um, Whereas James says in verse 24, uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul actually said in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there seems to be a kind of a contradiction there between James and Paul. And we read a book by a German theologian um, named F.C. Bauer. F.C. are the initials and then Bauer, B-A-U-R. And he said that James was the leader of the, uh, the, the Jesus movement in Jerusalem that was primarily the Jewish people. And they had their own doctrine about how you're saved. And then on the other hand, Paul was the leader of the Gentile Jesus movement in all the cities around the Mediterranean. And uh, he was the one who taught a, a different way of salvation that was only through faith, whereas James was mostly through works. Because it was the difference between the Jewish and the Gentile mindset. So that's what I heard in seminary. And... And I would agree that there, um, there clearly is tension between the two. If you know um, much about the Bible and, and much about Paul's teaching, you would, know, you would have immediately noticed this, that when James says that about works, it would be kind of startling. To anyone who's a Protestant and believes in what Luther discovered, that you're saved by faith alone, this is kind of a startling passage. And so I would agree that there is a tension between the two. There's no doubt about that. But I would come down on the conclusion that... Um, it is a tension uh, rather than a contradiction. And that basically they're teaching the same thing. Uh, that, that Paul actually also says that um, nothing matters except that faith uh, expresses itself in love. So if you, if you had asked Paul, he would have said the same thing. Yes, good works are part of the equation. Um, but, but Paul is talking about what justifies you uh, before God. Uh, it's a, it's a one-time instantaneous moment in which God sets the sinful person uh, who was before him, sets him right. Kind of like putting a bone back in place. It's a one-time uh, act of God's uh, initiative and declaration. He, he declares you immediately right. No works are necessary at all. Now, James is saying that, um, yes, that, that is a moment of justification, but there has to be some evidence that you have been set right, that the bone has been set right. And so that's why he emphasizes there must also be love. There must be good works as well. Um, if, you, if you know about the, the story of Paul George as a basketball player, and uh, he had this horrific injury, uh, which actually is, is captured on video, uh, where he breaks his tibia. It's a compound fracture. It's a horrible injury. And um, when the doctor set that right, it was, a, it was a, a moment in which the bone was justified. And actually the Greek word here comes from that very act. It's a medical term. That's what Paul's talking about. There's a moment in which the, person, the sinner is set straight with God. But, but really, uh, Paul George, in some ways, wasn't really justified in front of people on the court until that justified bone was working. And he was doing his great work, and he was scoring all his points. And that's more what James is talking about. So there's a, there's a tension between the two. They, they have different uh, focuses. Um, Paul is talking to people who think that they can be saved by their works. James is talking about people who think that, that works are not necessary. They're talking to different audiences, but they're basically saying the same thing. James is not contradicting Paul. 
But what James is promising, which I love, uh, he's promising that the, the faith that justifies uh, a sinful creature before a holy God will produce good works. It's an absolute promise that that kind of faith will generate uh, these beautiful works of love. And that's what I want to look at, those two things. Faith and the way that faith, you're saved by faith alone, uh, but it, that, that salvation by faith alone will always lead to a life of love and good works. So those two things. Um, faith first. Now again, it's important that you understand the context, the audience that he's writing to. Paul is, uh, James is right, Paul is writing to the, the Gentiles who had never really heard about God, never really heard about the Jewish God. James is writing to Jewish Christians. Uh, he was the head of the church in Jerusalem. And there was a great persecution that came on the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so they were, they were sent into the dispersion. They were exiled. And they're, they're now living in these cities around the empire like Antioch. And probably these Jewish Christians encountered people who were familiar with Paul. So Paul had already been out there in these cities talking about Jesus. And now these Jewish Christians are meeting these followers of Paul who have not gotten the teaching of Paul quite right. So they're misguided uh, followers of Paul who are um, these Christians who did not really know much about Judaism. And they were telling these people that James was writing to, they were saying, look, works are not important at all. Uh, all that matters as a Christian is that uh, you've been forgiven. And it doesn't really matter what you do till you die. All that matters is that you've been forgiven and, and God has pardoned you and you're set right. And so works don't matter at all. And that's the people that, that James is, is writing to and saying, no, 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 that's not quite right. It's pretty clear from the language of James that he actually knows a lot about the stuff that Paul was thinking about. Because he actually quotes the same passage in Genesis about Abraham being justified. Um, and, and James quotes it in a little bit different way. But he clearly knows about Paul's school of thought. And so James is saying, yes, again, yes, you, you have to be um, justified. And that comes through faith. But... But then that has to be shown, that faith that alone justifies has to be shown in, in a life of love and good works. And so the question is, um, how is it that faith, that this idea that you're justified by faith alone, how does that issue forth in good works? How does faith alone uh, issue forth in a life of love? And here's kind of one way I, I thought of it, an analogy. Uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I tried to make the basketball team uh, three times, actually. And by the fourth time, I just didn't even try again. And part of the reason that I couldn't make the team uh, was because I felt so much pressure uh, to justify myself, if you will. If I can use that term on the basketball court. In tryouts, I, I would freeze up. I would um, feel so much pressure and anxiety about having to, to justify myself to the coach. And I'm sure a lot of us have experienced this in different ways, performance anxiety, when you have to get up there and do it, and you have to justify yourself, you can't do it. So um, that's, that, that was when I was trying to, to make the team. Now, when I would go to the gym uh, over at Wake Forest and play with the same players that made the team that I didn't make, I could beat them in these games, and I, I regularly would beat them. I would outplay them because I was not playing to justify myself. I was actually playing with, um, with teammates who already saw me as good and right and justified, if you will. And because I felt very justified by them already, I didn't have to prove anything. I was confident. I was loose. 
And so uh, the good works, you know, flowed from that. And I think that you can make that same case with the way that you live before God at every moment. Um, if, if you are trying with all your might to justify your life, to prove to God that you're good, that you've done enough to earn heaven and so forth, um, you really cannot produce truly good works. Partly because you're going to be doing those good works for yourself. To show that you're good. That you're right. To either prove to other people or to God that I'm a good person. So the good works are not really for others or for God. They're for you. The good works can only come when you know that you are justified. That God declares you worthy and right and straight with him. And that uh, all things are well between you and God. And so you can kind of play loose, if you will. You can show forth a kind of a good works where you're relaxed. You don't have to do them. Uh, They come because you already know that you're justified. And I think that um, the example of Rahab is an interesting one. Notice how um, James goes to Rahab. I think it's really interesting that he went to Rahab because she was um, someone who was a prostitute. She was not Jewish. She was an enemy of the Jews. She was a Canaanite. She was kind of fighting against the Jews. And someone who was Jewish would have looked at a prostitute and thought, that's about the lowest of the low. So he uses Rahab... As his example in verse 25, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works? And when he says justified there, I would say shown to have faith. She was, she was proven to have faith by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Um, let me try to explain what that means. If you don't know the story of Rahab... Um, Rahab, again, did not need to be told that she was a sinful woman. She, she knew that very well. Again, because she was a prostitute and a Canaanite, she knew that. But when these Israelite messengers came to her city, and they came there to Jericho to see exactly what Israel was fighting against. Because the people of Jericho were fighting against Israel. And when these messengers from Israel came to her city, uh, she actually risked her life to give them shelter, to show them hospitality. She welcomed them in. And when the Canaanites came to her house and said, are you hiding Israelite spies? She said, no. And she risked her life to protect the Israelites. Now, why did she do that risky, bold act of hospitality and love? It's because she knew that somehow she knew that God looked on her with favor in spite of who she was. And she trusted that, she trusted that God would protect her and would protect her family when he came and and destroyed the city of Jericho. And so she wasn't, somehow she was not scared. Um, she was um, relaxed, if you will. She was confident in who, in who God said she was. Even as a Canaanite and a prostitute, in spite of her status and her sin, she knew that God was for her and that God would protect her and her family. And so um, she was justified. And her justification produced these good works of hospitality, of brave, radical hospitality. And I just want to clear up a problem that I I read in several commentaries that really, really bothered me. They said that, um, they said that what James was saying is that faith is not enough. And yes, you have to have faith, but then you also have to add good works. And so they were saying that faith is kind of like the, um, the ignition in a car and you turn the ignition and it starts, but then you have to push down the gas pedal and the fuel is what makes the car go. So you have faith at the beginning and then you have to add works after you have the faith. And um, that, is, that is not at all what, what James is saying. Um, James is actually saying 
almost the opposite of that. What he's saying is that real faith is both the ignition switch and the gas pedal and the fuel that makes you go. That it's actually, it was Rahab's faith that made her act that way. Um, it, it was, it's Abraham's faith later on, he shows us. It's Abraham's faith that made him do something so risky as to offer up his son to God. So it's not like you have faith at first, and that's kind of the ABCs of Christianity, and then, you know, D, E, F, all the way to Z, that's all works, separated from faith. You know, James will say, you can't put a, a piece of paper between faith and works. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. They, they are essentially the same thing. Um, he says in verse 26, you can see how organically related they are in verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Or I would say unimaginable. That a, a, a faith that is not doing anything in your life, is, it's not even a possibility. It's a figment of your imagination. And the fuel of faith is on the one hand, I desperately need to be justified. I, I know that my goodness does not help me. That's part A of faith. And then part B of faith is I know I have been justified and all my goodness doesn't help me in the least be justified. So I'm desperately needy. I'm completely justified. Those things come together and that will change your life. If you really are acting out of that, that will change your life. I mean, think about all the anxiety and the fear that you have um, day to day when you actually enter into a mindset where you have to justify yourself. I don't know about you, but maybe it's your wealth. Probably not. Some people it is. But you say, uh, you say to yourself, because I'm wealthy, I have justified my existence. Maybe it's your, uh, your achievements of some kind. Maybe your, um, your career or um, even helping people. Like I've done a lot of things to help people and therefore that justifies my existence. Or my family. I have a good family. I've created a nice family and a nice home. And that justifies my existence. Or I have my virtue um, whatever it is, uh, your grades, your intelligence is a big one, um, you're very artsy, or even you're avant-garde and you're kind of going against the grain. and you know, All these different things we make up in our heads that we think that's what justifies who I am. And, and God says, not at all. Not at all. You're justified by my declaration. I say you're justified, and you're justified. And then if you believe that, that will produce an incredible amount of love. Think about two children. On the one hand, you've got a child whose parents, their whole life, have held out affection in front of their heads like a little carrot. And they keep putting that you know, affection out in front of the child and say, if you're good, then we love you. And nobody actually says that. But parents do raise children that way. If you're good, then you're going to get more love and more attention and more affection. So you've got that child on the one hand. And think about how that, how that will hurt that child. To have to work to be justified. On the other end, you have a child here who is given unconditional love that you are right with us. We are pleased with you. You are my child with whom I am well pleased. That's what Jesus heard at baptism. God said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, period. You don't have to do anything. This is before the ministry started. And out of that confidence and out of that pleasure in our parent, uh, we act. A child like that is going to be so much more confident and so much more able to love. And if you define faith as mental assent to some, a few abstract doctrines, um, then that's not going to change you. That's not going to change you. I had um, professors that, that believed all these things, um, but I don't think they had real faith. They knew, they knew a bunch of stuff, but they didn't have faith. Paul, uh, I'm sorry, James says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. Um, and so, you know, I think any demon that you interviewed right now, if you got an interview with a demon, um, they could probably show you Thomas Aquinas' five ways to prove God's existence. They could, um, they probably know all the good apologetic arguments for the existence of God. You know, the demons were the only ones who, who knew when Jesus came that he was actually the son of God. Nobody else knew that, but the demons would always cry out, you know, you're Jesus, the son of God, leave me alone. So the demons have a lot of good theology. It's not all good, but they have a few things right. They're monotheists. Um, they believe in the incarnation. But, um, but the demons don't trust God at all. They don't have faith at all. And so you might be someone who just says, you know, I was raised as a Christian. I believe X, Y, and Z. Uh, it doesn't do anything. Um, the demons are incredibly suspicious and hostile of God. They don't trust God at all. They hate God. And think about the power that trust can have to make you change your life. Um, if you really trusted God, how much that would change your life. If you really had the faith that Rahab and Abraham had. You know, what if somebody told you, it's kind of a hard example, but what if they told you your spouse is, um, is having an affair? I know that. I've seen the person they're with and um, your spouse is cheating on you. If you started to trust in that accusation against your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, it, would, it would dramatically change the nature of your relationship with them. You would start to treat them differently. Maybe someone uh, in here is actually having that thought about their husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, if you begin to doubt them and, and doubt their trustworthiness, then it will radically change your feelings towards them, your attitudes towards them, your behavior towards them. But what if that same person came to you you know, what if, what if uh, my wife, if, if Margie came to me and, and said, and she just pleaded, it is all a lie, and you know it's a lie, and, and you're the only person I've ever loved, and, uh, and you have to trust me that I love you. Against whatever you've heard and whatever evidence you think you've seen, trust me. Now, if I actually believed in what she was telling me, if I believed her words that she loves me, that would change everything about our relationship. And in the same way, if you trust in God's free justification of sinners, it will change you forever. It will change you right now. It will change the way you see God. So either you're in that state of mind or you're trying to justify yourself. And James would say, if you have faith, like Rahab, it will generate good works. Your trust in God will generate love and uh, hospitality and courage and self-sacrifice. And that's what I want to get into now, the, the second point, which is the nature of these works. And I've, I've already mentioned some, but, but James gets a little more specific. And it's kind of uncomfortable, the way that he gets specific. But I want to look at that now. Um, second point, shorter than the first. That uh, works, uh, the kind of works that James is talking about, what are those works? What are the kind of works that come from someone who in their heart really believes that, um, that they're totally justified by faith alone? Well, look at verse 15. Uh, it's interesting that this is what James talks about. Uh, if, a, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, I want to just stop right here, kind of going off script here, but if anyone thinks right now they're not a Christian, you know, because you have to have works, um, let me just remind you, um, let me just remind you again of this basic premise that, uh, that to be a Christian is simply to be justified by God. Okay, so that, 
You need to take that first deep into your soul. And now, based on this verse, you've got to realize that that justifying faith will do something like this, where you will, you will be moved towards people who are in need by God. You'll be moved towards people. Because that verse right there can make you really doubt that you're a Christian, can make you think that, uh, that God uh, doesn't approve of you. Because uh, this, is, this is challenging. Um, if you see a brother or sister who's poorly clothed and lacking in food, and um, you say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, but you don't do anything to help them, James like, you don't, that's not faith. What, what, that's in vain. What good is that if you act that way? Now, I want to say that this is not the person who is asking for a handout at the street corner. This is not the person even selling papers at five points. That is a judgment call that's hard. And there are good reasons to give, and there's good reasons not to give. And that's between you and God. This is a brother or sister, which in James's day, uh, he wasn't from the South, and so he didn't just call people brother or sister. It was more like what Owen did, where he actually said, this is my brother John, because we are both Christians. We are both in the same covenant community. And so when James says a brother or a sister, he's talking about someone who's made a covenant with him in that same church. This is someone who he's deep in relationship with. And so uh, this is a church, probably in Antioch or maybe Alexandria, where there are people in great need. They're in exile. They have tremendous poverty because they lost everything that was in Jerusalem was just torn from them. So there's a lot of poor Christians in this. There's a lot of poor brothers and sisters in this church. And, uh, and what James is saying is um, when you know that you're justified by faith alone, the, the need of people who are poor, who are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, verse 15, their need is going to resonate in a special way with you. Because you know yourself that you're, you're a beggar. Um, because faith is someone who's holding out their hands like we're about to do at communion and saying, I need, I need help. I'm a beggar. I'm in desperate need of God's mercy. And all I can do is receive it. I have, I have nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. That's faith. And faith is also knowing that into those hands, God puts this delicious ciabatta bread from Panera, which is currently wrapped up in a plastic bag down here. So just to let you know, when when communion comes, I'm going to be pulling that bread out of a plastic bag. Jesus is not wrapped in a plastic bag, so uh, it's going to be fine. Nothing weird about that. But um, faith, because it is like a beggar in need, you're basically poorly clothed and lacking in food in the presence of God, and you receive from God. So why would that not make you want to go and help those in need? I can't imagine how it would not make you want to do that. If you don't have that impulse in you, then I would, yeah, you should question whether you have faith. If there's no impulse to help those in need, to help the poor, if you think that uh, you're better than the people who are in need and who are poor, yes, you should be questioning your faith. And James again says, what good is that? In other words, it's, it's in vain. What if Rahab, what if Rahab had seen these, uh, these spies come and um, they had asked her to desperately, please help us. Uh, if they find us, they're going to kill us. And what if she had said, well, I'll pray for you. We're going to have a prayer meeting uh, this coming Wednesday and we're gonna, we really will pray for you, but I can't let you in. Because if I let you in and they found out, they would kill me. So sorry but we will pray for you. That's, that's kind of like verse 16, go in peace. That's a prayer, you know, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And sometimes we do that. We use our piety, it's a really scary thing, to use 
uh, these acts of piety like prayer, like this benediction, go in peace. And when you use that to uh, excuse yourself from helping people in need, that's a scary thing. That's a dangerous thing. But we do that. We move away from need and we use pious excuses. But really, it's that we don't have faith. And um, we don't believe that we're exactly like the person in need that we're talking to that maybe makes us nervous because we think they're going to swamp us. Um, We don't believe that we're filled with so many resources from God's love that we can help them. Usually it's one of those two things. You either think that you're above them or that you're too weak to actually help. But um, the kind of lies we believe are like, uh, she hasn't worked hard like me. Uh, he keeps making bad choices I would never have made. I've earned what I've had. You got that set of lies. Or I don't have the resources to help her. Uh, his needs would swamp me. I've never been helpful to anyone. And those are all failures to believe the truth. Those are all failures to believe that you're justified by faith alone. That you're far more sinful than you think. And you're also far more loved and filled with resources than you think. Faith is both of those things at the same time. So what if you really believed that God had given you uh, abundant resources uh, to help people? That that was, um, that was your identity? Uh, what if you really believed that you were better than no one and that you had all these resources? Then, then you would be drawn to people in need. And, and maybe right now God is um, kind of uh, nudging you towards somebody. Uh, hopefully, as I've talked about this, you're thinking about brothers and sisters either in this church or in other churches, but maybe in this church especially, because that's who James is talking to, and maybe they need physical things. They actually have physical needs. Um, you know, it could be um, help moving or needing a ride somewhere, or even they can't pay their rent or whatever. One reason we have the, uh, the, the mercy fund that the, the servant leaders have is because we can contribute to this thing, uh, and then they will disperse that money to people that they know who are in need. And there are people in this congregation with physical needs. And so if you give to that mercy fund, the servant leaders will distribute that to people as they see fit. And they do a great job. And they work very hard to do that. And that thing should be full because, because our brothers and sisters should be taken care of. So you've got physical needs. You also have another kind of a need that um, James might be talking about a little bit, which is simply the hospitality, you know, to come into... My presence. I think the person he's talking about is kind of someone who feels uh, who feels lonely, perhaps left out, confused. They they do need food. They 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 are poorly clothed. But I think it's more than that. It's also kind of a hospitality. And so if you know people who are um, who are lonely, um, who feel left out, that's another kind of need that I think James is calling you to. Um, you know, even after church. Um, Inviting someone over, greetings, even just greeting someone is an act of faith. And if you lack generosity, if you, if you feel very, very depleted, then I'll just end by saying uh, we've, we've got to remember uh, the shocking mercy of God and the radical generosity and self-giving love of God, because that's who we worship. And I think that, I think that James mentions Abraham for this very reason. And I'll end with this um, This verse right here, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father um, shown to have faith, I'll say, justified by works? Was not Abraham our father uh, shown to have faith by his works? And here's the kind of work that he did. He offered up his son Isaac uh, on the altar. 
The Jews to this day still call this the Akedah, A-K-E-D-A-H. It's the binding is the word in Hebrew. The binding of Isaac, because they had to bind, Abraham had to bind him before he was called to sacrifice him. And as the story goes, God had told Abraham that he was going to have a huge family. I'm going to bless the whole world through your descendants. You're going to have children. You're going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And eventually the whole world is going to be blessed by your family. But, you know, many, many years later, Abraham and his wife Sarah have no children. They're very old. They're barren. And it seems like there's no way they're going to have this child of promise. And so Abraham has to believe that Sarah is going to actually give birth. And sure enough, she gives birth. And this amazing son uh, of laughter is born, Isaac, the son of the promise. He's born, and he's no, no doubt the delight of Abraham's entire life. This is the child through whom the promise will come to bless the world. And then, uh, shockingly, what does God do? He asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And when I say sacrifice, what that means is kill. That's a very hard story. Uh, Isaac is probably young, um, 10, 11, 12. Uh, it's, it's just kind of, I, I shudder to think about this story myself sometimes. It's in this little book called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I'll read that to my, uh, my children. It was really hard to read that as they were sitting next to me, thinking about this actually happening. But Abraham had to somehow believe, as he took his son Isaac up that mountain, that, uh, that somehow God was going to be able to keep his promise. Either that he was going to bring Isaac back to life, or that he's going to somehow provide something, some way out. And yet he, Abraham does begin to go up the mountain with his son. He binds him up. He's got the dagger over his son. He, he's ready to go through with it. He's acting on because of his faith. And then suddenly uh, God intervenes and uh, prevents uh, Abraham from having to kill his son. And you might ask, uh, why is that a picture of God's radical self-giving love? self-emptying love. It actually seems like God is a monster there. God's asking Abraham to do this terrible thing. But the answer is uh, God is doing this because he's saying to Abraham and to all Abraham's offspring, to us today, he's saying, this is what I was willing to do. That it was my son, my only son who I love. It's the same language that is used in Genesis. Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love. And then it says in the New Testament that God gave his son, his only son who he loved. Same language. And so uh, what God was showing Abraham is this is what I'm willing to do for you. To justify you. And all your offspring, I'm going to do this. You know, on the way up the mountain, Isaac looks into his dad's eyes and he says, uh, Father, I I see the knife in your hand. I see the wood to burn. But where is the lamb? Aren't we going to sacrifice a lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And now I'm going to read from the story in Genesis. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand upon the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram or a lamb caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the lamb and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And we know that God has provided here at this meal. That that picture that he gave Abraham uh, is actually fulfilled in his own binding of his own son, the Akedah, 
applies ultimately to Jesus, who was bound, and where God did go through with it. Um, God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son. And it is because of this work right here that we're going to celebrate that all our good works can come. All the good works of God's people come from uh, his own self-giving love to his people. So, uh, on the night he was betrayed...